0: Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Richard Lane on Friday, May the 29th. This week, aspirin for the primary prevention of vascular disease. Is it worthwhile? But just before that, some other highlights from the issue of The Lancet. It's dated May the 30th to June the 5th. Our lead editorial calls for a commission in the United Kingdom to oversee child protection based on recent high-profile cases. Also look out for a variety of research papers previously published online before print. These include the epidemiology of drug resistance for tuberculosis treatment between 2000 and 2007, the use of occupational and physical therapy for mechanically ventilated critically ill patients in hospital, and traditional child marriage and its effect on fertility among women in India. Also look out for correspondence in response to our series about health in the occupied Palestinian territory. This week's seminar takes a close look at cystic fibrosis. And look out for an unusual case report concerning chewing gum. An aspirin a day keeps the doctor away. Well, maybe not. The regular use of aspirin given to healthy individuals to protect against vascular disease remains a controversial area. In this week's issue, we publish an individual patient meta-analysis involving 95,000 individuals from six randomized trials to try and get more clarity on this clinical question. Earlier, I spoke to one of the authors of the study, Professor Colin Bagent, who is a Medical Research Council scientist based at the University of Oxford in the United Kingdom.
1: First of all, let's remember that there is no debate about whether we use aspirin in people who've already got evidence of vascular disease. I'm talking about people who have previously had a heart attack or a stroke or have some other evidence of vascular disease. In those people, the benefits of aspirin have really been conclusively demonstrated and they're much, much larger than any bleeding hazards that that might be present. Let's clear up, first of all, we're not saying anything different about the use of aspirin for secondary prevention. It's very clear that that is appropriate in, in, in many people. For primary prevention, there's been much more debate. And historically, there've been a number of trials, most recently uh, a trial in women, the Women's Health Study, which brought the total to six primary prevention trials. And a number of meta-analyses have appeared in the literature based on published data, which have been fairly limited in their scope. And based on those meta-analyses, Many guidelines bodies from the major organizations, the American Heart Association, for example, uh, the the Joint British Guidelines, European Guidelines, have all attempted to interpret the available trials. And in general, what they've said is once a person gets to a certain level of predicted coronary heart disease risk, then it's probably appropriate to commence aspirin. And what we wanted to do was to re-examine that by bringing together a collaboration of the, uh, the the principal investigators of the trials uh, in, in, of aspirin in prime prevention, and to get really detailed data from each of those trials and reanalyse them. To do that, we have brought together the evidence in a single data set, which we've reanalyzed. That's what these, this present report is about.
0: You mentioned guidelines there. Can you just... Elaborate slightly and give a bit more detail as, as to what they're saying at the moment concerning aspirin use.
1: They are generally saying what is appropriate is to take all the information one has about one's risk of coronary heart disease. So, for example, the risk factors that one would typically consider are things like whether one's a smoker, cholesterol level, blood pressure and other risk factors that are predictive of the risk of coronary heart disease. Take those together. And with a number of different methods, there are lots of different prediction equations, but using some sort of prediction equation, estimate one's risk of coronary heart disease, perhaps over the next 10 years, that's, that's very commonly done. And if that risk exceeds a particular threshold, and the threshold varies for different guidelines bodies, if it exceeds that risk, then commence aspirin. That is really the approach that has been taken up until now, and as the very existence of different levels of risk threshold indicates how much uncertainty there is about the balance of benefit in terms of reducing serious vascular events, by which we mean heart attacks, strokes, and other vascular causes of death, and the bleeding risks, by which may mean, obviously, intracerebral hemorrhage, which is a really serious risk and often causes death or serious disability and gastrointestinal hemorrhage, which is less, less often permanently disabling.
0: Just go on and tell us about the methodology of, of this current meta-analysis, because it's an individual patient meta-analysis, isn't it? Which I think means that there's a certain degree of more, more robustness, if you like, about this methodology compared with previous analyses.
1: That's right. Well, we had the benefit of a collaboration between the trialists, and many years back we asked the trialist to provide us with a a standard data file in which we'd ask for information about particular, for each individual patient or person, standard information on risk factors, age, gender, whether there was a a cholesterol level available, smoking history, and so on. That that was available. Uh, And then we asked for the particular events that had occurred, in the, in, if they had occurred in particular individuals, and the date of that event, whether people had died. And by having that level of detailed information, we were able to reconstruct the results of each trial so we could be sure that we, were, we had the same information that had been published originally but we were then able to put them all into a single data set, which could be analyzed in the same way. So whereas if you're looking to combine information from particular publications, one's very much at the mercy of what has been presented in the paper, we could do pretty much anything we liked with the data to produce a sort of overall estimate of particular effects of aspirin on particular outcomes. That meant that we were able to generate new information, really, effectively, about the effects of aspirin in primary prevention. We were, in particular, able to consider what I think is a major issue with regard to aspirin, and that is whether the risks of aspirin, that's the bleeding risks of aspirin, increase as people increase in their level of coronary heart disease risk. Remember I mentioned that the guidelines currently say if you are above a certain level of predicted coronary heart disease risk, then aspirin may be appropriate. Those guidelines have never been able to consider the possibility that those very people who are at increased risk of coronary heart disease might also be at higher risk of bleeding. And as I shall mention in due course, we did in fact find that very thing, that it isn't a simple um, matter of just picking those people at high coronary risk because those very people are also at increased risk of bleeding.
0: And do go on and tell us about the main results from the meta-analysis.
1: The main results were that aspirin as in secondary prevention had clear effects on coronary heart disease. So the reduction in major coronary events by which I mean a heart attack or death from coronary heart disease was clear and but it was clearest for non-fatal heart attacks. So there was not good evidence of a reduction in coronary heart disease mortality, and that's a very important point that we come back to when we consider whether aspirin is appropriate. Now, the reduction in primary prevention in non-fatal heart attacks was really tiny. The reduction was from 0.23% per annum to 0.18% per annum, so translated into an absolute benefit that Uh, translates to about five fewer non-fatal heart attacks for every year in every 10,000 people treated. And if you compare that to secondary prevention, where, for example, the reduction in serious vascular events was 150 such events per year for every 10,000 treated, you can see that there's an order of magnitude difference in the size of the benefits. For stroke, there was clear evidence that one increased With aspirin the risk of hemorrhagic stroke and there was evidence that one could reduce the risk of ischemic stroke and that is similar to the situation in secondary prevention. What was also clear was that the net effect was uh, no good evidence of a reduction in the risk of stroke and if anything there appeared to be a slight excess risk of fatal hemorrhagic stroke and therefore if anything an increased risk of fatal stroke. So for stroke Aspirin in prime prevention does not appear to be uh, of net benefit. Just to recap on that, there's a clear effect on coronary heart disease, but mainly in non-fatal events, and no good evidence of an effect on stroke. There was no good evidence of any reduction in any other causes of death. So overall, for the aggregate of all serious vascular events, the composite outcome of heart attacks, strokes, or vascular death, there was a 12% reduction, translating into about 6% fewer events per year per 10,000 people treated. That was the overall evidence for benefits. To set against that, the bleeding risks were comparable in magnitude. There was an increase of around a half, so the risk went from around 0.07% per year to 0.1% per year. And so one can see that the absolute benefits were approximately twice as large in in numerical terms as the uh, bleeding hazards. With this observation that the absolute benefits and hazards appeared to be finely balanced, we then considered the implications of that for public health policy, and it's important that we remember what we're actually trying to do here. We're comparing a strategy of giving aspirin immediately to particular individuals who considered to be at risk um, versus deferring aspirin until an event occurs, so a heart attack or a stroke occurs, and then you start aspirin. That is what is being compared. When you think of such a policy for prime prevention, one can consider giving aspirin in this way to particular types of people One area where that's been considered is in people of different ages and males or females. And incidentally, we found that the benefits of aspirin in proportional terms appeared to be similar in men and women, which was somewhat against the previous claims in other studies. But when you look at different age and uh, gender categories, and when you look at people at different levels of predicted coronary heart disease risk, in each of those categories the benefit appeared to be around twice as large in numerical terms as the risk of bleeding. However, if one was considering commencing prime prevention strategies, then actually, given that statins are now uh, generic and low cost, and there's good evidence that statins reduce vascular mortality, and that evidence is obviously not available for aspirin, it would probably make sense to commence prime prevention strategies with a statin-based regimen. And if one did that, one would reduce the risk of serious vascular events by around a half. One could do that quite easily with standard or intensive regimens with statin and possibly uh, blood pressure-lowering regimens, perhaps an ACE inhibitor. So the risk before one considers adding aspirin will be halved. If one does that, then the benefits of adding aspirin to a safe uh, or forms of primary prevention, perhaps a statin-based regimen, would be roughly similar in size to the hazards. We concluded that in the modern era, when other forms of safe primary prevention strategies are available, adding aspirin to such strategies um, doesn't seem to make sense. It's not, at the moment, good evidence to justify general guidelines advocating the routine of use of aspirin in all healthy individuals, even if they're above a moderate level of risk for coronary heart disease. We felt this was really in part dictated by the need for drug safety when making recommendations for tens of millions of people. That may even be an underestimate of the numbers of people who will be affected by this evidence given the current situation with uh, Um, increasing risk of coronary heart disease around the world. To conclude, we don't really have good evidence for healthy people. Uh, We believe that the benefits of long-term aspirin exceed the risks by an appropriate margin. So there needs to be clear evidence of benefit that substantially exceeds the hazard if you're going to make recommendations for very large populations.
0: And finally, Professor Bajan, a couple of observations. I'm assuming that these results should change clinical practice quite promptly I think there's still a perception out there that an aspirin a day can keep the doctor away.
1: I think we'll really be quite careful about how we um, interpret these results. Uh, There isn't currently evidence uh, to support widespread use of aspirin and that doesn't mean that individual people can't say well actually I've considered the evidence and I think for me it would make sense to take aspirin. What we're trying to do is to draw attention to the lack of good evidence for guidelines, really. It doesn't mean that an individual can't make a personal choice, and and they may well wish to do that. As far as exceptions go, uh, well, I mean, there are exceptions to the use of aspirin for healthy people. For example, you might consider that, you know, if you're about to embark on a long flight to your holiday destination across the other side of the world, you, you might consider that popping an aspirin may be on the day of the flight and for a couple of days afterwards would help to avoid venous thrombosis. There's really not good evidence for it, but based on our knowledge that aspirin knocks out platelets for a short period and that they subsequently recover fairly rapidly, uh, it might make sense for you to choose to use aspirin. I I personally do that, and I don't think that's irrational, given that the risks of bleeding are probably very small for such short-term use.
0: Indeed, and possibly Similarly, immobilisation, so long hospital stays or something.
1: Well, then you get into a different area, which we haven't tackled, whether or not aspirin is appropriate for avoiding venous thrombosis. That's that's a completely different question and and not something we tackled.
0: Many thanks to Professor Colin Bajant, and do look out for the accompanying comment to this article. Many thanks for listening. See you next week.